Welcome to Rare Book School 2006, the sixth session of the uh, year. It's nice to see so many people here and certainly flattering to our speaker. We won't tell him that this is the largest Rare Book School session since 1993 uh, and that you're all threatened if you didn't come. <laughs> Our speaker this evening is Christian DuPont, who is the relatively new head of special collections at the University of Virginia, and it's a great pleasure to welcome him to this podium on our behalf. Thank you. Very warm applause here. And I'll say thank you to Terry, first of all, for the invitation to speak this evening. It was really just three weeks ago that uh, he tapped me for this assignment. He needed a pinch hitter and so turned to the batter on deck. I was indeed on deck for this assignment. This is something that Terry had talked to me about oh, uh, a few months ago when I was uh, uh, appointed here and began my duties. It was in February of this year that I began in my duties as a director of the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library. And he had suggested this idea of uh, the topic to speak of my experience as a new director of the Special Collections at UVA. So, uh, but in saying that, I won't be reading tonight from a polished text. I um, haven't had time. For one thing, I've been a student at Rare Book School, and there are some people who have been here last week, and we were in session together, and it's nice to see you uh, again. So, I have some thoughts together. I'd like to share them uh, with you. They've been gathering my mind for some time. They do relate to my experience here as a new director in special collections at UVA, uh, and more generally on my uh, library experience. Uh, perhaps I should give just a little further introduction uh, to myself. Before coming here uh, to the University of Virginia, I was director of uh, the Special Collections Research Center at Syracuse University Library for it turned out exactly three years to the day, which was uh, uh, a short time, but uh, a long enough time to uh, to really get into that role of being a director, because prior to that time, I had uh, served in a number of capacities at the University of Notre Dame, which is where I uh, made my uh, entree into special collections librarian uh, shift from the academic side as a graduate student, first as a graduate student assistant, then uh, eventually the um, uh, head of reference services, and then curator for special collections. So that's a little brief, the track that I followed. And as I reflect on it uh, this evening, it's been 15 years of continuous experience, which is longer than I've done anything in my life. So uh, I guess I have some bit of uh, occasion to speak on advices that I have received and perhaps uh, could even give in that way regarding special collections librarianship. So it is really an honor and part of my enculturation to UVA to have the privilege of speaking here in the rotunda, which of course is the icon uh, of Jefferson's plan for the university and its former library. And you have some semblance of that. Uh, the, many of us would know that the rotunda was destroyed by fire more than a century ago and that we were, the room as we're sitting in it today was a, an attempt even in the 1970s to, to rebuild it as best it was known to have existed in Jefferson's time and in the uh, bookcases here, which are filled, of course, with an exhibit from Rare Book School on the Jane Eyre collection, um, gives some sense of its purpose as a library. 
Uh, I hadn't been here. I'd, uh, as a child, visited Monticello when I was younger, but never UVA. And in fact, my first and most powerful memory of the Rotunda is a talk that William Reese, a, the bookseller uh, in New Haven, gave for Rare Book School in 2000, which was my first time coming to Rare Book School. And it's an odd feeling just six years later to be standing at essentially the same podium and having the last few days even conducted a presentation for fellow uh, Rare Book School students in which I discussed how uh, Reese had divided the Paul Mellon bequest for uh, UVA between the uh, uh, University of Virginia and the Virginia Historical Society in Yale, and to have talked with Bill about acquiring additional Jefferson letters. So this web of associations in and around Rare Book School grows very thick, and it's a very pleasant thought for me this evening to entertain the thoughts of your destinies and all of us collectively, and where we might be six years hence, and thinking about how much better uh, we will know each other. And that's really a very pleasant thought, and part of the purpose, a very large one, in our coming together for Rare Book School. So as I said, Terry gave me the topic, but he uh, left the title to me. And since we are gathered in this place, the nexus of, the, of Jefferson's own academical village, it is only natural that I chose a title with a deliberate Jeffersonian reference. And some of you may have known that, but others of you are very like, puzzled as to what this smooth handle thing is all about. Well, one learns quickly at UVA that there's a certain expectation, even utility, to quoting Mr. Jefferson, or TJ, as he is intimately and affectionately called by our students. And since the topic of our lecture was uh, about uh, my experiences as a new director, it was furthermore natural to think of me, for me to think about what um, I had received in terms of advices in that role and what Jefferson might have given as advices. And so the title, Take Things Always by Their Smooth Handle, is, uh, if you hadn't guessed, that a Jeffersonian reference and his bit of advice that I have been pondering over since first discovering it. It is number nine on his list of a decalogue of canons. That's uh, his subheading for the list that follows, and you'll permit me to read it quickly. It begins, never put off tomorrow until, until tomorrow, which you can do today. Never trouble another for what you can do for yourself. Never spend your money before you have it. And those of you who know Jefferson, yes, I'm uh, <laughs> not following his own advice. He certainly left his heirs with some debt as he pursued, pursued his aims. Uh, never buy what you do not want because it is cheap. It will be dear to you. Pride costs us more than hunger, thirst, and cold. And it's corollary. You see these actually come in pairs, right? We never repent of having eaten too little. You can find that in speaking of Monticello as a refrigerator magnet, and yes, we have one at home. It says just that. Nothing is troublesome that we do willingly. How much pain have cost us the evils which have never happened. Take things always by their smooth handle. And when angry, count ten and before you speak, and if very angry, a hundred. So. So a mixture of obviously very common advice and some things that are a bit more obscure. Now the normal attribution for this text is a letter to Thomas Jefferson Smith, the son of Samuel Harrison Smith, an old friend and political ally of Jefferson's, and it is dated 21 February 1825, so just over a year before Jefferson's death on 4 July 1826, 50 years to the day after the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, of which he was of course a principal author. If you dig farther, you'll find that this letter, what is cited as a letter, uh, was the draft for a lengthy inscription for a copy of Cicero's Republic that Jefferson presented to his namesake, Thomas Jefferson Smith. The volume which survives in the Library of Congress includes the Decalogue, the canons I just read you, a poem 
which upon closer investigation proves to be a metrical translation of Psalm 15 made by Nicholas Brady and Nahum Tate at the end of the 17th century. Uh, incidentally, for that one, Jefferson composed a heading for the psalm and quotes the portrait of a good man by the most sublime of poets for your imitation, not naming the psalmist or even indicating that it's a psalm. And then there is the letter, which is a sort of preamble to both the, uh, the portrait of a good man and the decalogue of canons that follows. The letter is poignant and very touching, so you'll allow me to read it as well. This letter to you, Thomas Jefferson Smith, be as one from the dead. The writer will be in the grave before you can weigh its counsels. Your affectionate and excellent father has requested that I would address to you something which might possibly have a favorable influence on the course of your life. And I too, as a namesake, feel an interest in that course. Few words will be necessary with good dispositions on your part. Adore God, reverence and cherish your parents, love your neighbor as yourself and your country more than yourself. Be just, be true, murmur not at the ways of providence. So shall the life into which you have entered be the portal to one of eternal and ineffable bliss. And if to the dead it is permitted to care for the things of this world, every action of your life will be under my regard. Farewell. This letter gives us a sense of Jefferson's eloquent sentiments and prose. And the association with a book brings that sentiment much closer to our own bibliophilic vocations. It is remarkable for that, and remarkable too, because we find in it a Jefferson whom we are not accustomed to meeting, a man who seems at ease setting down his thoughts in an overtly religious frame, the Decalogue of canons, like Moses' Decalogue, or Psalm 15, and discussions and references to the afterlife, instead of limiting his reflections to the principles of self-government and the rational laws of nature. But what does it mean, take things always by their smooth handle? From my scant researches, which have included conversations with a few Jefferson scholars, I have not yet discovered the literal meaning of what Jefferson had in mind. What kind of tool was he talking about that would have perhaps more than one handle? And whether he was quoting a common saying, as in, never put off till tomorrow what you can do today, um, as in the case of several other candidates of Decalogue, or whether this saying about taking things by their smooth handle is original to him as would seem to be the case. I haven't turned up any earlier references to it. So uh, if you have ideas or no, I would uh, appreciate your talking to me at the reception uh, afterward. But nevertheless, despite the absence of perhaps a determined literal sense to this uh, saying, there is a figurative sense to Jefferson's motto that is readily intuitable. Uh, taking a tool or a farming implement, perhaps, that is what Jefferson had in mind, by the smooth handle means taking up and using it the way that it was means to be operated, the way it had been handled before. There is an implied caution in it as well, not to do injury to oneself by grabbing the rough handle and trying to force the tool to function contrary to its nature, chafing and blistering one's own hand in the process. I rather like the image that Terry created for the poster to advertise this lecture, and if you haven't seen it, he has placed the rare book school mascot, the Book Arts Press Lion, behind a captain's wheel. And among the spoke handles that surround the wheel, there is a pair that is perhaps smoother than the rest that have gotten that way because they are the one the captains hold uh, to keep the ship on a steady course forward. In my case, coming to UVA this past February, I found a pair of handles on the wheel that had been well-worn by my predecessor, Michael Plunkett, and his own predecessors. Moreover, I found Mike himself, whom I'm sure that many of you have known here through the years because there are always a number of returning students to Rare Book School. Um, Mike is now a fellow in our Harrison Institute of American History, Literature, and Culture and working on a new edition of his African-American bibliography. Mike has been wonderfully available to me uh, as a resource in helping me to introduce 
meet me to people, Jefferson scholars and otherwise, and sharing his past experiences and knowledge of the department, and being enough at a, at a distance to really let me take hold of uh, uh, the helm, as it were, uh, my, in my own ways. The situation was actually very different when I arrived at Syracuse as the new director of special collections three years past. That position had been vacant for some two and a half years uh, prior, and my predecessor's departure was actually rather a sort of unpleasant affair with many lingering effects. And needless to say, he was not available uh, to me in the way that Michael has been, and uh, or even the least interested in facilitating a smooth transition. In that case, um, and even in my case now, it was really not so much a matter of trying to find the pair of smooth handles on the wheel as it was putting new handles on the situation. And actually here as a new director, where this transition has been infinitely smoother, I find still that uh, there are many cases in which my job consists not in finding the smooth handles and steering the ship from there, but creating again this new set of handles that others can then take hold of as I take hold of them myself. An example. Um, I'm always concerned with improving our services and deploying our staff in the most efficient ways possible in order to accomplish the many things that we desire. And one thing I've seized on is improving our online circulation system. Uh, as you have a chance, and I can do a little self-publicity, we'll have a tour of our building on Wednesday evening if you'd like to join me for that, and I'll take you through, and, and uh, including our reference room, and you'll see that, in fact, the way it's arranged is for readers to make their own online request for materials that we page into the reading room. Well, this all works rather well on, on one side. On the other side, behind the desk, it could work much better, and we could serve our patrons the better for it. Uh, improving it's going to require the cooperation of other departments, and so we must you know, approach that uh, through the administration to do what we can to get the resources we need. Uh, but there, this is you know, one particular instance, but for me it's going to, I hope, uh, allow us to uh, deploy our resources uh, and staffing for the reference desk in, in other ways in time, and my staff is still taking notes to what I'm saying over here, and, uh, uh, and uh, improve our services to, to users, and I hope build a more integrated system for uh, the way that uh, people who come to our, our, our reading room will register and then uh, make requests for materials, and, and we'll be able to track those materials along to their uh, fulfillment in digital services and, and otherwise. So that's, in one case, where I'm looking for an issue and, uh, or a problem and trying to put some, uh, some handles on in a way that others can, can see and, and, and grasp onto it concretely and move us forward from there. But this is really a purely local uh, example. And so what I'd like to do is uh, with you to consider what, in fact, I think are really the larger issues uh, for our uh, common enterprise here and, and to see and to talk with you about what ways we may put handles on them. The Rare Books and Manuscripts section of the Association of College and Research Libraries last month held a conference whose theme was Libraries, Archives, and Museums in the 21st Century, Intersecting Missions, Converging Futures. In one of the more thought-provoking plenary addresses, Gerald Beasley, director of the Avery Architectural and Fine Arts Library at Columbia University, argued that libraries are distinct from museums insofar as the primary objects that libraries contain are books and other textual objects and furthermore, and more importantly, it is the nature of those textual objects that creates the distinction between library and museum functions. In developing his argument, Beasley uh, quoted Tom Tansel's justly famous essay, Libraries, Museums, and Museums and Reading, which he gave, that is Tansel gave, as the sixth Saul M. Malkin lecture at Columbia University, and which was published under the auspices of the Book Arts Press in 1991. And for some further promotion, you can buy your own copy at Terry's shop at our closing reception on Friday afternoon. 
Beasley, quoting Tansel, seizes on this uh, argument, quote, the primary fact about the nature of libraries and the one most often ignored is that libraries do not house works of literature or other verbal works. Language is intangible. Works that use language as their medium are inevitably intangible also, and one cannot preserve something that is intangible in a physical space. It goes on, because works of language can be performed within the mind as well as orally, and because readers are actually sitting in libraries and are actually experiencing such works, many people have been misled into thinking that literature exists between the covers of books. It is perhaps easier to see that a traditional music score is not music, for a person reading such a score is not experiencing the work of music in the medium which it was meant to be experienced. And then he talks about how reading a novel silently is in fact participating in the, the nature of the uh, work as it was meant to be experienced, but with some distinctions. Um, and he goes on to make a more general statement about how the different kinds of performance are required for different types of texts. And concluding, saying that the status of the tangible text in relation to intangible works is the same. So now where Tanzel and Beasley following him take these notions is not where one might expect. Rather than conforming, confirming the commonly if unconsciously held belief that subordinates the physical aspects of text to their intangible or intellectual aspects, they do the reverse. Namely, they contend that the intangible aspects of text can only be accessed, can only be known and experienced through their particular tangible instantiations. Quoting Tanzel again, the immateriality of literature forces us to pay attention to every detail of its material transmission. We generally have no other way of getting at it. We don't usually have access to the author to talk about what the author meant, would be sort of implied in that statement. When it is seen, however, that reading physical evidence is all that reading can be, he goes on to say, when it is understood that reading to experience a verbal work entails a reconstruction of the work through the acceptance or the rejection of each instruction provided by the tangible text, then it can be recognized that there is no divergence between an interest in physical evidence and an interest in ideas. Now, you'll forgive me for rehearsing what to some is a well-known thesis, because for some it may not be. Furthermore, because it is such fundamental importance to our collective enterprise, I think it bears some repeating and reinforcement. Certainly, I count it as one of the chief advices that has directed my thinking and my work and has served as a kind of bedrock in which I have constructed further reflections about my work as a director of a special collections library. You'll forgive me also for because this is precisely not the kind of thing that one is likely to learn as part of a standard library and information science school curriculum, which is the experience that is very close, if not actual, to a number of you this evening. In fact, there are some students of library uh, schools here right now thinking about this and you can judge for yourself whether uh, you are getting this kind of instruction or not. Uh, for myself when I began uh, library school and this was going back um, roughly 10 years now I started uh, doing my program uh, when I was at Notre Dame and was uh, doing it in the evenings uh, uh, while I was working as the uh, reference uh, supervisor at uh, the Special Collections at Notre Dame. My first course, uh, and it was some real dissonance because this followed right on the heels of my, uh, my graduate work um, at Notre Dame. The first course was titled User Needs and Behaviors, and I did one of these flight checks when I walked in the classroom. Of course, I knew that was the title of the course, and I had to say, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for a course to become a drug counselor, you know, user needs and behaviors. This isn't what, quite what I had in mind, much as I, you know, respect that profession, you know, but uh, uh, it, it was jarring to think about that, user needs and behaviors. So. What is that all about? Well, 
let's go back to Tansen for a minute, where he goes on in his argument to talk about reading requires us to be curators, and information science can really only be, in essence, the knowledge of how texts are affected by the tangible means devised by human ingenuity for their transmission. That's really what uh, library and information science is about. Now, it is worth reminding ourselves that the background against which Tansel delivered his lecture was the closing of the library school at Columbia and library schools at several other institutions and the transmission, transmutation even of uh, many of those remaining library schools into schools of, quotes information science. And so Tansel's critique was pointed then and it is no, not less so now. Those of us who work in libraries are well familiar with the philosophy that is implied in courses such as my user needs and behaviors. And again, it is obvious and not at all surprising to us. User-centeredness in library administration mirrors the general societal trends consistent with our consumerist economy and our customer service-oriented culture. Of course customers know what they want, and of course they are always right. But notice the shift in language and terminology. I'm certainly not the first to point out that libraries have no consistent ways of referring to people who benefit from them. These days, we most often speak of library users or even clients, but we generally avoid the word customer. We are ready to call them patrons, although in other cultural institutions like museums, as was pointed out at our recent RBMS pre-conference, a patron is someone who gives you money, not just someone who frequents your establishment. In special collections, we often speak of our researchers and sometimes scholars. The term is fitting in many cases, but not all. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has assisted someone who insists that they don't deserve to be called a researcher or scholar. All I want to do is read the book. Is that okay? What's wrong with that? In the UK, where ancient custom and tradition, and I dare say wisdom in this case, prevails, readers are still called, well, readers. Whereas in the US, we have special collections reading rooms. In the UK, they actually have readers who use them. Likewise, in the UK, when you talk to someone, uh, someone about their institutional affiliation and degrees, you are likely to say that, well, so-and-so read history at the University of Cambridge, and so on. The point is simply that our terminology does reflect a certain philosophy and approach to what we do, and that for my part, and I say this now from my own experience, and not just quoting Tansel or Beasley abstractly, I consider the essential activity that goes on in a special collections reading room to be, again, reading and that librarians and those in related fields, collectors and booksellers, bibliographers and textual critics and historians, ought to spend time thinking about what our readers do when they read, and not by the by reducing that experience to its outward manifestations by limiting our concerns to their activities as users of certain services, in other words, as consumers. Now, the correlate to all this, of course, is the role of collections in the reader's experience of a library. And that is primarily what I want to focus on in our remaining time, and again, building on the notions of textual materiality as a foundation. Insofar as Tansel was speaking against the background of the closure of library schools, and I am speaking against the background of current library school curricula, which emphasize our user-centeredness and user services, what is it that I'm, what is it that uh, that philosophy is speaking against, user-centeredness and user services? Well, collection-centeredness. The thrust of the user-centered movement in libraries has been to move libraries away from what has been regarded as a kind of introverted activity. After all, in contrast to the general population, research by Brimsek and Leach and others have shown that the majority of librarians, in fact, are introverts. So this introverted activity of building collections, presumably for their own sake or for the sake of librarians, without regard to the needs of those who use them, or more positively, speaking, uh, to move libraries toward providing easier access for users to collections 
by making the searching and discovering of researches, resources a less arcane or esoteric task. Well, this is all well and good, and I'm certainly sympathetic, and more than that, I would lead the charge to improve the services uh, that our special collections offer to our users. You'll recall my uh, earlier example of wanting to improve the online circulation system for our special collections here at UVA. I really, really do want to improve that, and, and uh, we'll focus time and attention on doing it. But at the same time, I do not want in any way to sacrifice or neglect our essential function of collection building. For if there's one thing that library users and special collections readers in particular desire, it is our collections. It is as false a dualism and dichotomy to pit user services against collections as it is to emphasize the intangible aspects of text over their material aspects. To put it another way, if our users tell us what they really want, and believe me they do, having had experience with LibQual and other library uh, assessment surveys over the years, uh, as well as with anecdotal data, I can say this, that library users want access to library collections. If our users prove collection-centered themselves, then perhaps we should take it as our duty to give them what they want, and I do mean that quite seriously. This is of critical importance, I think, for special collections, where collections remain a part of our name and our collection building an essential part of our mission. In academic libraries at large, we're aware of the trend to outsource collection development. The most obvious way this has happened is with the advent of approval plans, and this is not a new thing. And approval plans have tended to displace decisions about acquisitions from the local library to the library distributor or vendor. Now, true, libraries retain control of the plan profiles, and individual selectors can review individual titles, though in some situations they're discouraged from doing so. But the more you work with such systems, the more you realize that the really important decisions about what libraries do and do not acquire are being made by the library distributors and behind them the publishing industry and the way it functions. There are other ways in which collection development is subtly or not so subtly being outsourced by academic libraries, but we needn't take the time here to go into them or even to argue against them. Indeed, by what, stating what I have said, uh, I do not mean to imply that this is all bad at least with respect to general collections and academic libraries. I actually do believe that the means of textual production and distribution as we move further and further along in the digital age will increasingly favor the development of collection, collections of general library resources outside of local academic libraries. But with respect to special collections, I believe that we need to do essentially the opposite. That is, we must apply our best talents and resources at the local level toward developing collections that will exist physically at the local level, but which may be profitably accessed and shared virtually in addition to, or better as a prelude to being used, which is to say read, locally. In this vein, I'll contend that the fundamental unit of the library is in fact the collection and not the individual book. We underscore that. The fundamental unit of a library is not a book, but collections. So what are collections? And we should give ourselves over to thinking about this um, and frequently. I believe that um, we need to give that thought, what are collections, um, as much attention as we do and uh, encouraging the status of text and the experience of reading. Again, this is not something that library school, school students are likely to encounter in their curricula, even if they take a course that is nominally titled Collection Development. Maybe I could even ask for a show of hands. How many library school students, how many? Or I'm getting a drink of water, you can raise your hands and... Did you take a collection development course? 
I'm going to talk about what are collections, I mean, philosophically, right? I'm not seeing many hands go up here, right? What really are they? No. Collections may be appreciated by understanding, of course, what they are not. They are not mere accumulations or aggregations of text. They are groupings of related texts, and it is the relationships, the associations, that is key. In fact, reading at its highest level, I'll argue, is beyond that first, and I dare say, and want to reinforce, essential first step of deciphering the markings on a page, and that is part of what bibliography is about. Several of you here are doing a course in descriptive bibliography, after all. That is very important, fundamental work. But beyond that, at the even higher level, reading involves the creation of associative knowledge, associative knowledge about text, interrelations among them. If we go back to Townsell for a, for a second, reading requires us to be curators. Again, there's a quote of this before. And information science can only be, in essence, the knowledge of how texts are affected by the tangible means devised by human ingenuity for their transmission. So, and he goes on to say, so however we define the source of meaning, whether we search for past meaning or believe that present meaning is all there is, we are tied to artifacts. The objects made by humanity form a yoke that hold us all together. Well, that yoke really comes in the collections of texts and how we associate them as readers. Now, even in the digital world, this is really important. And then we can bring it back around again. We're faced with this need to form collections, I would argue. In fact, I think that as special collections librarians and those who work with primary resources, we ought to make this a matter of our special attention, what is happening in uh, the formation of digital collections. And here the background for our discourse might be the Google Book Project. What else, right? What will be the effect of digitizing some 10 million titles? Uh, many of these will, in fact, be texts that are represented in our special collections, uh, older texts, texts Many of them, uh, uh, you know, from the 19th century, even earlier. Um, e-book text would be another example of this. But I'm thinking particularly like these aggregations, like a Google Book Project, which, although it's, you know, going to be ripping through academic library collections, will, in my mind, not at least by itself, constitute a true library or a collection. It will probably be something more of an electronic aggregation. And although it'll be very exciting, and I'm very in favor of doing this, by the way, of digitizing text at a massive scale. Uh, and I think there will be opportunities uh, for texts, as it's kind of said, to be reading themselves as you search this vast corpus, which is now one, uh, to, to find those associations. That'll be very uh, exciting to do. But that's, again, that essential task of reading. And it is not just a function of the digital aggregation existing by itself. And it is also something to consider what goes in to forming this aggregation of text. There will be many things, of course, that are left out of that. And whose responsibility will that be ultimately? And, and how will people use these things? When you have so many digital texts available to you, will readers tend to think, well, this is, well, maybe not all there is, but certainly enough of what is. And we'll ignore those things that are not then in this universal uh, digital aggregation of, of text do those things that are not online uh, matter anymore. We're speaking here just even of the digitization of printed text. Think about what happens uh, with all the archival material that serves as primary resources and how that might be represented or not represented in digital aggregations. More concretely, let's go back to those Jeffersonian texts I cited at the opening of this talk. This was a little experiment for me. In fact, I accessed all of them online. I was sitting in my 
comfortable sofa in my living room with my laptop on my lap and uh, hunting down these texts. Now, it was a little frustrating in certain ways doing this and because um, I certainly found the text, I had some, some cues, I knew that you know, there was this decalogue of can canons um, that I discovered in the gift shop of Monticello where I'd gotten the refrigerator magnet you know, about the, uh, seldom repenting of eating too little. And uh, I guess it works, right? <laughs> but um, the, the fact of finding that it was an inscription in a book was not something that was created for me by the digital uh, aggregations in which they are presented. Both texts you can find are in the American Memory Project at the Library of Congress. In fact, that's where the physical texts reside. The book is there, and so is the, the letter. But most often, it is quoted as being from this letter, and most of the reference I found, whether they're actually online or not, seem to ignore the fact that this was an inscription in a book. In fact, it's rather obvious if you looked at the letter and know how Jefferson worked, what is there, as the quote's letter, is a retained draft. There are corrections in it. It is not the final it was the form. It was not what um, Thomas Jefferson Smith would have received. It was Jefferson's own retained copy. But that association was one that was rather difficult to make, and I kept working at it to find it in the digital environment. So was the fact of this psalm being quoted as being, in fact, a psalm. I mean, there's that ambiguous reference by the most, a poem by the most sublime of poets. Well, who would that be for, for Jefferson? You wouldn't guess immediately that that would be David the psalmist, would you? And the metrical translation is a free enough form that it's kind of hard to recognize Psalm 15 in that. Well, it's only another letter of Jefferson's, which you could also hunt up if you search you know, uh, long enough and, and hard enough in the digital archive, where you find that he explains in giving the same decalogue of, of or, or rather in, in sending that same metrical translation to somebody else, that he says, well, this is, um, you know, Brady and Tate's. Now, who are Brady and Tate? Well, then you can go in and figure that out from there. Um, so, again, this very important association uh, is not made there by itself in the digital archive, although it certainly could be there. Why not? Um, I trust that scholars know this, although, again, I did talk with a few Jefferson scholars, and they always kind of cite the letter and don't make reference to the book uh, inscription, but I'm sure I'm, you know, not by any means the first to discover this. But this is an associative reading is what I'm trying to bring out. And I think it's the kind of thing that we as librarians ought to be uh, figuring out how to do in this, in this digital world. Um, another phenomenon of the digital world we think about, Wikipedia, right? We've all used that, and it's a rather, you know, why bring this up here? Uh, because it, it brings in that other element. We talked about uh, how, what, what I view is, is the, that experience of reading, and we ought to be very concerned with that. Well, how are people reading texts today? Well, reading is a form also of commentary. One gives back uh, to the text, and with, whether it's uh, in Wikipedia or other wiki-type texts, you can actually, in this online environment, have the reader contribute something uh, back to that, that file. It could make. Why couldn't I, you know, in the American Memory Project, say, by the way, you know, see the book that you know, this refers to. Um, I couldn't do that as a reader, but there's nothing preventing that from actually happening in the online environment. And again, I think this is something that we ought to consider uh, doing and maybe more connected with our fundamental work as uh, librarians than actually just getting these aggregations of texts up. I'm actually quite relieved that you know, the, the folks at Google or other um, uh, publishers have sort of taken on that task that we thought was, first of all, ours to digitize text. Well, let them do it. You know, let's put our minds to, to better things, uh, which is, um, I think, more involved in this essential task of 
building collections, understanding what collections are and creating them, uh, and creating them as those meta-collections that readers um, form when they read. So maybe I'm uh, you know, preaching somewhat to the, the choir or the converted here. I don't know. I think it's you know, uh, important still to call our clear and focused attention to these concepts lest they slip away from us. Uh, my intention here is really uh, to give you that smooth handle that uh, uh, I've been given through uh, the thought that's gone into special collections librarianship and uh, the way that we work with texts and we work with collections. The most powerful advices are those which deeply, most deeply affect our thinking or change the course of our actions. And so, in talking with you and sharing these thoughts this evening, um, I've been trying to just share those advices to you which have most powerfully stirred me and which I hope in some way might stir you if they haven't already. So you've been a very patient and generous audience, and I thank you for your time.